Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, a podcast that is often about strategy and tactics games, uh, unless we go off on on a tangent about something a little bit different. I am Len. I'm your host for this week, and I am joined by our good friend from Tap Tap, Ian Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. And I believe your first time on Three Moves Ahead, we have freelance writer Josh Broadwell. Hi, thanks again for having me. Yeah, we met in the uh, the crucible of the Baldur's Gate 3 reviewer discord <laughs> uh, <laughs> as we were all grinding our way through that like 150 hour game with a four day embargo or whatever it was. Um, yeah, uh, but today we're here to talk about Total War Pharaoh. It is the latest. Uh, they're not calling this one a saga game, although it's from Sophia, who made a Total War Saga Troy uh, Creative Assembly's Sophia Studio. Uh, they're calling it this one a, a full fledged Total War game, um, which makes me wonder if they're just done with that branding altogether. Because uh, I would say it's a little bit smaller in scope, probably, than something like, you know, Rome 2. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, Ian, how have you been finding it? I like it. Um, <clears throat> it is a little bit smaller in scope, but I think that there's, um, I mean, it still has a lot of the weird total warness about it. I mean, I think that we're just never going to uh, lose. <laughs> um, but some of the new ideas I think are really compelling. I, I really like the outpost system. I really like um, uh, the, the, I like on paper, I like the, uh, the, the new stance system and the battles and the dynamic weather and um, things like that. But, in general, no, I, I think it's a it's a good total war and um, the uh, yeah, just it feels kind of crisp and clean and, and back to basics, I guess. Uh, we could probably talk about that a little bit more uh, as we as we proceed. But yeah, I'm 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 pretty high on it. I think I like it. Yeah, yeah. Back to basics is and this is like the first properly historical total war, I think since is it attila is like troy had a historical mode but it was like that but yeah tr- truth in the myth thing and three kingdoms if you're playing that on historical mode i don't even know what you're on like romance mode was the way to play that game so, so this yeah. is like the first fully historical total war game in a while um uh josh i'm curious what's your uh history with the total war franchise um, I was a bit off and on with it for a long time. I think my most most of my experience with it was actually with um, Warhammer Three, um, which is probably not the best background to approach <laughs> Pharaoh from, <laughs> since they're you know basically completely different, almost basically different series. Um, but yeah, I I really enjoyed Pharaoh. Um, I agree with Ian. The outpost system I think was probably the the big highlight, mm-hmm. um, and I think the half steps toward grand strategy um like with the intrigue system in court i think those are good ideas but it i think they need a bit more polish I, I would be really curious to see how those develop in an expansion or or a sequel um but yeah i think overall i really enjoyed my time with it yeah i think in terms of just like general impressions i mean i i ended up giving it an eight i think that it was it was kind of like an eight across the board sort of game uh tom marks who's one of the review editors at IGN was even commenting on how consistent it seemed to be that everyone was like, yeah, it's about an eight. Um, That's what I gave it for PC games. And too, I did the review and yep. Eight. It's, it's an extremely eight out of 10 game. Um, Yeah. I think definitely the, the richness of the campaign mechanics are the strongest thing it has going with for it. Um, you know, talking about outposts and sort of the intrigue system, which definitely could use some building out. I think depending on what faction you are, I guess for people who haven't played it, there's there's like five different court positions and they're slightly different, whether you're in Egypt or Hati, which is like the Hittite kingdom in the north um, that each have. There's like hostile actions you can take against them. There's kind of schmoozing is is sort of what i would call the the friendly one and then you can make requests based on how much you've schmoozed with them um but it is it's it's fairly restricted to the point where i think based on which character you're playing as because they all interact with it a little bit differently 
it becomes solved fairly quickly. Like this is how to get the maximum amount of favor and get the most out of. Right. Like by the end of my Tauseret campaign, I was just like, okay, uh, you have to gossip with everybody and then you use her special power to turn their turn any plots against you against the person who started them. And then, uh, you know, you either steal, uh, steal renown from or steal legitimacy from someone or you, you, you know, try to get someone assassinated or whatever. Is it like the discredit plot? Yeah. uh, Yeah. But there's like, there's (laughs) so many other better sources of renown in the, or uh, legitimacy in the campaign. I think depending on the character, it just seems silly. Uh, Also, the other thing that I thought was weird about the court action mini game is that. I mean, you can you can like launch plots to blackmail and even assassinate other characters. And as far as I can tell, there was no like reputational costs to doing any of that stuff in the diplomacy screen. No, like- <laughs> well, it's like the counterbalance against it is that like if someone discovers their plot, they'll like pay you to stop. But yeah. like it, it doesn't it doesn't hurt your your diplomacy or anything on on like a strategic level. They're like, hey, I heard you were gonna try to kill me here's i'm gonna pay you 100 gold to fuck off (laughs) yeah yeah that's basically what it is so you still get rewarded for trying to assassinate them uh (laughs) because they have to pay a cost to make you not do it um yeah Yeah, it is kind of funny so it's even yeah there's there's less risk involved than there is in say taking one of like like a covert action with an agent on the uh on the map and other games right like you normally if you were going to try to wound an enemy general or something like that, you know, there's be a chance that the spy would be hurt or killed or captured or something. And that's just not present here at all. Yeah. So I, yeah, I thought that was a little, that was a little weird. Yeah. I was kind of expecting more of a, maybe like a more personalized kind of like dynamic relationship thing um, where like, that's like my first interaction with it was, I think it was the treasurer was trying to assassinate the high priest or something. And because I gossiped with the right person, I found out his scheme and then it failed. And I was thinking I'd just, you know, swagger in there and use that to blackmail him. And it's like, it never even happened. So yeah, that wasn't, wasn't quite as interconnected as I was hoping it would be. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's also like, uh, you know, you eventually kind of grow out of those mechanics. Like if you become Pharaoh or you become High King of Hati, you eventually can unlock a legitimacy ability where you can just put all of your own generals <laughs> in all of those court positions and then you just have all of the powers forever. Ah, um, mode. Which by that point, it's like, yeah, there's enough other stuff going on that it's kind of OK. I think that they 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 sort of soft retire this mechanic. Right. Um, but. Uh, yeah, the um, the issue I ran into with like the Pharaoh powers is some of them just didn't work. Mm. <laughs> like the annexation one did like did not work for me. I don't know if either of you got that far to where you were unlocking like the higher level. Like I can just annex somebody every twelve turns things, but uh yeah, and that just I, never I, happened. Wow. I feel like the late game needed a little bit more QA love, maybe. Um there was um some of the okay, so there are there's another kind of campaign mechanic yeah. uh called uh, the where you, you select an ancient legacy one mm-hmm. of four. Right. And um I had I'm okay, look, uh just apologies, blanket apology for how I pronounce any Egyptian or Hittite <laughs> name. Hittite uh, ones are <laughs> impossible for the, for the rest of the show. Yeah, it's just not gonna. I'm not gonna get it right ever. But uh-huh. uh, is it Thutmose the Conqueror? Um, yeah, like, or Tutmos or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah. In this, so you're basically selecting a campaign style, like what you're going to be. Yeah. Like there's one that is that kind of replicates the the uh, caravan system that mm-hmm. you might have seen in in Warhammer 3 or that also in Troy I can't remember but um but in it, this conqueror path is you know pretty self-explanatory you um you 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 pick a major cultural center that you that you want to take over and then every turn you get to you know choose to spend gold to either sabotage the settlement or build up a native resistance and I wasn't like sometimes that 
the like I, I'll have uh, prepared the uh, the you know made every step of the preparations, and then um, the the final unlock will be like you can force the enemy to sally forth from the fortress. Mm-hmm. And uh, but if that happens, then you fight a different kind of battle where none of the other preparations that you've made matter or can, or, or can fire. Like if you're fighting the enemy general on the open field because they've sallied out, then it doesn't matter that you've sabotaged the walls or the archers. Um, so it, there's, yeah, there's some weirdness there too. Like, where, wait, is this the, is, it, I just had this weird feeling like, is this how this was supposed to work? I don't, I don't think. Yeah. It just, uh, it, it stopped working for me at all. Eventually. Like I could still, I could still pay to build up the native resistance and they would join me in the assault, but then it never resolved. Like I would own the city, but that city would still be my target and I would still have the maximum like native resistance power. Um, which I'm, I'm 95% sure that's not how it's supposed to work because I'm pretty sure the first time I did it, it was like, congratulations, you conquered the city. Like there was some resolution to it. Um, yeah like where where are you going next or yeah, something and, yeah, and, uh-huh. yeah so yeah there's there's some weirdness with the campaign mechanics um <clears throat> in general who who have you guys played as so far i'm curious i played I was, as ramen Ramses and uh amon mess or amon messe yeah 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 i was gonna say i was i was i took the boring route and i stuck with ramses after the after the tutorial campaign and then um i think it was seti i think was my second one mm-hmm. yeah i need to i need to branch out a bit more but those are the two that i did for review yeah i tried to make tausret work like three or four times and she's just such in an awful position like being in the middle middle of egypt with strong factions mm-hmm. on either side of you like that is that is brutal that is rough i eventually won with almond mess because he he starts in the south and you can conquer the south and then you just have like two directions that you don't have to worry about anymore you still have to look out for the west because the libyans are just gonna keep sending you know raiders at you forever but um only having two directions to worry about i think definitely makes his campaign a lot less stressful um the sea people showing up does i I was having a great time with ramses just because you get all of sinai (laughs) to conquer like right off the bat yeah that was Uh, a nice bonus (laughs) yeah and then i mean i was able to push up into canaan for a you know a little bit and then seed some territory back and just make excellent friends with my border there um, and so all I had to worry about was Egypt, northern Egypt, until the sea people showed up and started causing problems for everybody because you've got so much coastline to worry about at that point. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I was curious about that because I <clears throat> the only campaign I played long enough to get to the like final apocalyptic like end game sea people invasion was when I was playing as Amon Mass. And I felt like they uh, they were kind of a pushover, but I had like Seti and Ramses basically in the way, like before, yeah. like they, they controlled all the coastal land still, even though I was Pharaoh and I had 500, 600 legitimacy or something like that. Um, and they did send armies up river. Like they will try to bypass uh, like Merneptah and and all those settlements and like get down into like the heart of Nubia. So that was cool because I was like chasing them up and down the river being like, oh, shit, I don't have garrisons in any of these cities. These do not burn them. <laughs> um, but then like once I had dealt with those like three or four stacks, it felt like the Sea People invasion was over. And I feel like that's. Maybe not the intended experience. Maybe I need to go back and try Ramses or Seti because I want to see what it's like when you are on the front lines as they're, you know, coming up, coming ashore. And yeah, uh, it's because it very out. much is not the experience if you've got a, a like a coastal presence. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's wave after wave of different uh, peoples that, that just start showing up. I mean, once they're on the shore and you do like you batter them a little bit, it's OK because they are. 
they can't reinforce, they can't, you know, replenish at all in any way, I don't think. Um, and they don't, they, they don't take settlements. They just, uh, you know, they, right. they, they'll, they'll loot, I think, and raise settlements, but, or they'll sack, but that's it. Like they won't like establish a beachhead or anything like that. So. Yeah. I think the way that you kind of, the way it throws the sea people's end, I mean, even some of the other challenges at you, I think it handled the sort of, um, the style of of teaching you where it lets you just make terrible mistakes and then you realize what you're actually supposed to do next time. I think it kind of perfected that uh, because like, like, uh, like you said, Len, as far as realizing at the last minute that you didn't actually have any garrisons where you needed them um, and how you probably should have divided your resources. Um, I think it felt, it, and, and maybe it's just because I only have experience with Warhammer three, but it felt a little overwhelming at first. And then after you do, you know, see your empire fall apart in flames, you, you realize pretty quickly the way you're, the way you're supposed to plan. Um, and I think that was um, handled better than probably most of the actual in-game tutorials, just by letting, letting you loose and burning all your cities to the ground. Could we talk about the, like the, the tutorial system that total war is kind of settled on? Cause it, it, it I feel like some of my feelings about it crystallized with this one. And I think it's annoying. Like the whole system of having an in-universe advisor telling you how to play the game. Yeah. Uh, in like, you know, uh, era accurate language. Like it's not helping. Like the, the fact that the character is an NPC in the game. Uh, doesn't help you learn how to play the, the like what you're supposed to do. Um on a practical level, like what, what do I click on to, you know, to check like when, when my, you know, populations, um, experiencing unrest, like what am I, what am I as a, as Ian sitting at the PC here, what am I supposed to do <laughs> about that? I don't, you're I'm not, not actually Ramses. But like yeah. they, they do, they address yeah. you as if you are, you know, uh, um, Carl Franz or, or Ramses yeah. or something like that. And yeah. it's just not, it's not a helpful way to learn how to play a technical, like a kind of a complicated strategy game. Well, so because I'm a very Im immature person, every time the advisor said anything about Shemsu Hor, I was like, what did you just call me? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like they do have a, like the one thing I like is that they do have that thing now where you can, like quick click on the question mark and like hover over stuff and it'll tell you more about specific interface elements. Yeah. Um, but overall, I definitely think I would agree with you that like total war needs, needs some sort of a paradigm change in its tutorialization. Um, I do, you know, they, they kind of gradually introduce you to mechanics. Uh, Cause you know, there's a lot of campaign mechanics. We've only talked about like half of them so far. Um, and like you start off with most of them turned off and then like the first two six turn cycles, they kind of come online little by little. Um, but they kind of rush you through the explanations of them, I felt like, which is, yeah, it's, you know, I do like the flavor part of it, yeah. but yeah, it, it doesn't feel like they really get deep into like. Okay, here's how the system works, but we're not really going to tell you how to use it effectively. Yeah, yeah. I had yeah they give you the kind of that. like the the historical, like the the abstract yeah. concepts that you're supposed to be. Yeah, okay. Uh, I I do want to encircle enemies, or I, I want to out I want to outmaneuver my rivals in the court. But yeah. like what that means on a practical level, as somebody who's trying to play a total war game, is not well explained. Yeah, and I think I think like you said, Len, um, having more practical solution practical examples for how to how to use it would be really helpful because i mean i'm normally fine with text instructions but it just felt like with this there was an overwhelming amount of text and then you're kind of left wondering like you said you know what do i do now and then as you're trying to figure that out there's another round of text coming at you so i ended up just kind of ignoring the tutorials which might explain a lot about why my first campaign went wrong but even <laughs> still <laughs> uh, well and okay so here is my big sticking point with the interface in total war pharaoh which is um influence is basic it's basically the replacement for like culture it's how dominant is your culture in this area compared to like you know, the locals or other factions or whatever. 
and uh, you get bonuses for having high influence, penalties for having low influence, and there are certain buildings that give you more influence. Here's the thing that they don't tell you is that there is like a secret influence resting point that is a layer of abstraction removed from how many like plus influence buildings you have built in a province. And there is no tooltip within a tooltip. There, there is nothing that will tell you how this works ever. You can only figure it out through trial and error. Like if I demolish this building, is my influence resting point going to drop below 80 so I don't get the highest bonuses? You just have to tear the building down and find out because it's not explained at all. The way it says influence works is not actually the way influence works. And you just have to experiment to figure out how it actually works. And man, that bugged the hell out of me. <laughs> That's <laughs> man. Um, it's it's kind of a small thing. Like, OK, yeah, if I lose 10 percent resource production in a province, that's not the end of the world. Um, mm. By the late game, at, at least by the late game. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess one thing yeah. I mean, I, I I would almost say that it is because I mean, uh, throughout, especially my Ramsey's campaign, um, one thing I noticed was that I was much more. Uh, and again, this we, we probably should point out that like. Like Troy, um, Pharaoh has a kind of commodities-based economy where instead mm. of just money, you have gold, stone, wood, food, and bronze. And like each of those, you know, currencies is used in different ways by, you know, your units, by building production, you know. Um, and and but because of the way that like bonuses and discounts stack and things like that, I found that like only by really finding like the sales, the way that like finding, you know, discounts and, um, um, and buffs to my uh, resource production, was I able to field like an effective late game force? Like I really had to pay close attention to that. So yeah, that, that 10% resource production in a province might not sound like much, but like, yeah, I wound up being way more, nervous about those than I have typically been in total war games. Yeah, it was, um, I really appreciated the extra level of strategy required to manage your resources effectively. Um, one of the, <laughs> one of my first big failures was I picked a fight with someone I made a treaty with and then, uh, realized too late that they were a lot stronger than I was. So, I offered them a ton of stone as a peace treaty and you know, that was great. It worked. And then like a couple turns later, I'm almost out of stone. So you have to really plan carefully before you splash out on any of the resources. Um, yeah. If you, so, yeah. if you run out of stone, you're kind of done. Yeah. Developing. Like you can't build anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you don't have a source of, uh, of stone or you know, somebody you can trade with for it, for it. Um, there's basically nothing you can build. Yep. Yeah, that was that was a reset for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially like later on, if the sea people are like burning settlements everywhere, there's going to be less total resources to trade, period, like across the entire map. Like, I think I got to a point where uh, when you're selecting a, like trading partners, you can say, OK, I want to see only the people who don't really care about food. And eventually that list was no one. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was little enough food to go around yeah. that nobody had like the little red X by food. Um, yeah, you definitely to like run a really efficient economy. You definitely have to do some arbitrage, like buying low from one faction and selling high to another faction. Yeah, which I kind of like. <clears throat> I don't feel like it's way too fiddly. Um, it can just be annoying when like nobody has the resources you need. This is also probably why I would recommend Amon Mess again, even over Ramsey's for your first playthrough, because his whole thing is I just have stacks and stacks of gold and everybody loves gold and you always can just trade gold for what you need in a pinch. Um, yeah. You know, some of the like tier five and six units use gold as an upkeep, but you're not. It's not that much like <laughs> you're, you're going to yeah. have plenty of gold. Um. Yeah, there is also that if you do the um, the hot Shep suit legacy, I think you can actually send out trade caravans, which I did think was a little too fiddly. 
I was like writing down in a physical notebook, like, okay, I need to go here and trade this and then go there and trade that for that. And then here to trade the thing I just got for this other thing that they want over here. Like that, that could have used some interface help if, if I'm actually pulling out a physical notebook to, yeah. You know. And I mean, the other thing about that was like, I, <laughs> I, I was excited about the, the, yeah. the trade caravan thing. I was like, okay, great income. Yeah. This is going to be good. But then it turns out that like all the commodities that you're trading on the caravan are just these arbitrary items that have nothing. They're not connected to the campaign in any other way. Like it's um, like musical instruments or horn or like, you know, just like local olives or something that it it's just for the use in the, the caravan mini game and doesn't like, there's no unit that needs olives. Or- yeah, well, they they all like they all do something if you bring them home and like dump them in a city like sometimes it's something lame like I think the musical instruments it's just like a public order bonus for six turns or something okay oh that's neat then but, all right but the but, meta yeah. that I figured out is what you really want to do is you want to go around and get like enough trade resources that you can buy these special auxiliaries which are characters that ah. only exist in certain settlements and they're way better than the ones you just get randomly from like going around doing battles and stuff. Okay. Uh, like some of them are ridiculously overpowered. So if you're doing the hot suit legacy, that's what you want to look for is those special ancillaries that, uh, that only can be recruited in certain settlements. Um, and also it's nice if like, okay, I'm running a food deficit. I'm going to buy like, 50 units of wheat from Canaan and then bring that home and then not have to worry about food for another 25 turns or something. But yeah. I think that was that it, when I was playing as a uh, um, almond mess, that was my plan with the, with the caravan. Cause I, I, I think I tried to take that one stone producing settlement to the uh, immediately to the East of his starting position and failed. Um, mm. and then waited around too long and it got too strong for me to do anything about. It, and I found myself blocked. So I was like, okay, well I'll, I'll send a caravan out and bring back a lot of stone. And it just doesn't, it, that was not an easy thing to, to get. To, it was not a solution to my problem, I guess. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or it so wasn't going to be fast enough. The one thing that's kind of interesting hearing you both talk about the Hatshepsut legacy, cause I, I didn't actually tinker with that a whole lot. Um, the first one that I spent a lot of time messing with was the Akhenaten. Um, so it's actually just pretty interesting how how significantly just the legacy can affect the way your campaign goes, because um, mine ended up being more focused on sort of I guess I guess it would be more of like a traditional culture victory since I was trying to max out the bonuses from the oddly shaped uneven religion that I created. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I haven't played that one, so I'm curious to hear how it works. Yeah, so. Uh, well, the, the nerdy part of me thought it was just really cool anyways, because it's such an anomaly in ancient history. You know, you go from all these, um, it's suddenly you just, you'd have um, monotheism, you know, where that had just not been the case for, you know, thousands of years. Um, and and then with this one, um, I'm trying to think exactly what it was, because I haven't looked at the interface in a while. It was, I think you take two, you take two religions and then you combine them together and you get some sort of, um, you can pick from any of the any of the gods in the game, um, put them together, get some extra bonuses, but then you forsake any possible bonuses that you'd get from any other religion for the whole rest of your campaign. So it's a really big kind of risk reward thing, um, which, you know, in keeping with my first run, I messed up the first time, but I think it's a nice way to augment how you're building out your settlements and what you're focusing on. Um, It kind of actually had a, a sort of, guided to tuto- hands-off tutorial for what you should be how to build a balanced settlement that you didn't actually get in the main tutorial um so that was that was a really fun interesting way to to weave together history and gameplay yeah i noticed uh, there's the city of akhenaten and you can't even do anything with it if you're not on that legacy right like it's just like permanently a ruin um yeah, I mean, historically, Akhenaten was a pharaoh who tried to basically turn Egypt monotheist. And I think it only lasted like one generation or something. Yeah, um, everyone hated him forever after that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that might be an interesting one to try out eventually. Um, did anybody do what's the fourth one? Khufu, like the 
the the monument building one because I I have not touched that one either. No, no I want to though. Um, I want you to because I think that that would be an interesting like that's got to like play into the whole collapse system in an uh-huh. interesting way because like I one thing I really liked about this was at least the idea and I want to like in subsequent playthroughs I'd really like to try for this a little bit more but one of the ways to prevent the Bronze Age collapse is to uh, restore and build up the key cultural centers in the region right so mm-hmm. you. You either have to conquer all of them, which is a tall order because they're spread all over, you know, Anatolia, the Levant and Egypt. Um, but, but, but so kind of by default, you're everybody's kind of in this prisoner's dilemma where, you know, either you're devoting insane amounts of resources to rebuilding these major cultural centers and turning them into, again, the pillars of the uh, pillars of civilization and, uh, you know, and having to rely on everybody else doing the same thing. Um, or, yeah, it fails and the collapse kind of rolls out. So, yeah, that monument building legacy seems like an interesting approach to addressing like the main thing that's kind of driving the, the collapse. Yeah, which is itself a pretty, pretty neat mechanic because in most, you know, it well, even in, you know, Warhammer 3 and then most, I guess grand strategy games in general you know the whole goal is building your empire and succeeding you know look you've created a utopia and this is you know and then here's what happens afterwards (laughs) so it's just not something you see in most games like this um yeah which i know is a little bit of an unrelated tangent but it's just a really nifty setup i really like it too i it's got this apocalyptic um feel to it that yeah i I mean attila had that um as well i my memory of Attila is a little fuzzy. Like I can't remember exactly what, is there anything that kind of, um, is there a similar system in that game? Well, so Attila had the climate change. That's right. And, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it was a little bit, I guess, more granular than this. Cause like in Attila, yeah, like provinces would like basically lose their food producing ability up in the North. And it kind of, pushed everyone towards like Italy, Greece, Southern France and Spain. Um, if you wanted to still have a society, uh, which I still think that's one of the best campaigns I've ever made. Whereas this, yeah, it has like the three tiers. There's like prosperity, crisis and collapse that change the bonuses. Settled factions get the bonuses the sea peoples get and like the bonuses that um, the other nomadic tribes uh, like the Libyans and uh like the Phrygians up north get. Um, So interestingly, it's not all negative. Like even if you're one of the settled factions fighting against the collapse, I think you get bonus income from raiding the more the the collapse has progressed. Um, And there's even some technologies, or I guess they're not technologies, they're royal decrees that give you more resources the further the world has slid into collapse. Uh, which is kind of an interesting trade-off way to plan your economy. Um, yeah. So uh, the collapse of the Bronze Age was really about the erosion of norms. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what made me wish that they had given more severe economic penalties because, like, I think even at total collapse, like, the <clears throat> full, like, it, it's it's straight up not having a good time level of... of societal collapse that you get to eventually um it's a bonus or it's a penalty to unit replenishment and i forget what the other one was but like it doesn't cripple your economy really um it it feels like it it, yeah it should be yeah like it should not like it it should be some like collapse should be like a threshold at which the economy does not function anymore (laughs) And like it gives ridiculous bonuses to the sea people armies, like to the point that like even on auto resolve, you're going to need to go like 2v1 to beat a sea people army because I think they have like plus 30 percent melee attack or something yeah. at that final level, which is ridiculous. Um, I had Tossetti archers from Nubia, so my strategy was just kill them before they get close enough to use that. But 
Um, <laughs> love love my Nubian archers. Uh, Nubian archers are definitely the MVPs for me of uh, of Total War Pharaoh. Um, God, yeah, uh, I I mean the the elite Medjay archers are also very good, but like yeah, I think the Nubian from like pound for pound, and especially New, for for Nubians money. have a they have a two hundred and forty the, the meter, range right uh, yeah. range, which is. The, they're the only unit in the game that has that. Effectively, Total <laughs> yeah. War Pharaoh's artillery. More or less, yeah. yeah. Um, Nubia has kind of crap infantry is the the problem. <laughs> like uh, they have a they have pretty good spear units, which is like yeah, if you just need to hold a line, they're not going to win. But you know, maybe you could sneak some javelins behind the enemy line yeah. or something like that. Uh. You know, one thing I've, I've heard a complaint, you know, while while we're talking about units, um, and this is, I mean, Josh, you'll have some, uh, feelings about this, I think, but one of the complaints I've seen from, you know, on like on the subreddit and, uh, and steam response to Pharaoh is that like the, and in other reviews too, people have said, well, the time period really limits the unit variety. And I don't know. I, is that. Is that is that a fair criticism? Do you think like this is an an ancient Egypt setting? I got what I wanted. I felt like I was like you know between the different um, local units that you could raise and the different kinds of elites that that were available. I I don't know. I didn't feel like I was being you know shortchanged on units. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I- com- but the come down from Warhammer three is pretty it's a it's a big step down in terms of variety for sure yeah i think i think when i was playing it i just kind of had to try and make sure that i was separating it mentally because i mean obviously you know in any kind of historical setting you're not going to have the variety that you get in this amazing fantasy world with dragons and snot goblins and all those other things (laughs) that you've got there um i think i think for what you get there's a there's a pretty respectable variety of formations and strategies you can use just i mean even with a handful of basic unit types that you start out with in pharaoh um if anything at first i felt a little overwhelmed trying to figure out you know how to make sure i grouped everyone together the right way um and what to do with the chariots and, and all that but yeah no i to me i don't think that's a leave favorite. them at home yeah <laughs> yes. i learned that really quickly <laughs> God. chariots just they require too much micro like i need i need a second player just to be my chariot person like because like, yep. like cycle charging cavalry in other total war games it's like yeah that requires some micro but like chariots to get the most out of them require so much micro and you're gonna lose yeah. so much money if you don't like it's it's it's, yeah they're good for Uh, drive-bys sometimes but that's about yeah yeah like like if you have a a bow chariot and you just put it on skirmish mode sometimes you can lure a key infantry unit out of position or whatever but um yeah yeah um i thought the unit variety was actually very good for what is here i mean there's Every faction has a small handful, like every character you can play as has a small handful of unique units. Every culture has basically a full roster of units. And there's like within Egypt, there's three, there's four different cultures. If you count the Western desert. And I think Canaan has two and Anatolia has two or three. Technically they've combined some of them together. Like, Mm. The Caskians and the Luwians and the Phrygians, I I think, are all part of like the Anatolian Highlands native faction or whatever. Um, Yeah, I thought they did a really good job with unit variety. My main disappointment is that if we're talking about the late Bronze Age collapse, I feel like you you got you kind of got to have Assyria and Elam and Babylon in there. Like I just wanted the map to go a little bit further east. Because yeah. like that yeah. was such a huge part of the story of the late Bronze Age collapse. Um, well, that, that I mean, I wonder if that's what the plan is. Have they have they talked about DLC plans for this at all? I mean, in you know, this is a full Total War mainline game, so you must assume that there's DLC plans. And I, I look, wonder if that's looking at Steam numbers. I am worried that it did not sell well enough that we're going to get Mesopotamia DLC. We might get playable C people. Mm. 
but I think that might be the, I don't know. I'm, I'm disappointed that it looks like it didn't really sell that well. Um, and I guess that's, yeah, I don't know. There seems to be some total war fan revolt going on over the pricing (laughs) of the last Warhammer three DLC. Well, they feel like this should be saga priced. I don't know. They're, they're mad. I was reading through some glass door reviews for creative assembly. Um, and like one of them specifically called out, it was like an employee who'd been there for three or more years that like, uh, there's an adversarial relationship with the, the fans that the company doesn't seem interested in doing anything about, um, ah. which could be its whole own show. Really? Like I really That's... don't understand the way creative hmm. assembly has chosen to communicate or in some cases not to communicate. Um, Sophia seems like they are actually the ones that are like a little bit better at that, uh, to be honest, which is why I'm disappointed that, you know, Pharaoh might not sell as well. Um, Cause I, I, I think I might like see Sophia better <laughs> at this point um, based on, you know, the last few times I've talked to them, they, you know, they, I always say that I can tell when I'm interviewing a developer like who is like legitimately like really excited to be doing what they're doing. And I definitely got that vibe from Sophia during the whole press circuit for Pharaoh. Um, yeah. Whereas I think I've described certain CA Horsham uh, interviews I've done as somebody being let out of their prison cell for a little while to assure everyone that they're fine. <laughs> uh, well, won't name any names here, but uh, if you go rewind yep. back through our feed a little bit, I think you might find some uh, evidence. To- <laughs> holding up a copy of today's newspaper during the uh, um, interview. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a lot of that speculation on my part. I will qualify that, but you know, uh, it does. That's the feel I get. Um, from, from, you know, talking to those two studios fairly regularly. Yeah, gosh. Well, I, <laughs> it is disappointing to know that this has kind of been a bit of a dud sales wise in its first week. I mean, especially since, well, the Three Kingdoms brought in a gigantic new audience. The Warhammer series has all obviously done gangbusters. So I don't know. I don't know what the expectations were for this, but it is a bummer to know that it's kind of. Um, yeah, been a bit of a dud. Yeah, I mean, and, and outside, I mean, I'm not actually really active in Total War communities or anything, but so I, outside of that, I've hardly seen any buzz about it up to launch. So I don't, I don't even know how far of a reach it's got outside of Total War people, um, which is a real shame because it's pretty evident from even like really tiny details that they put in a lot of effort into making this. Um, and to to kind of I guess really doing something interesting with the history behind it, and they 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 definitely did their homework and a lot of the things like um I think I mentioned in my review one of the one of the buildings you can choose to build and should build or else um is a cemetery and it maybe it makes people happy which seems like such a a non thing to even like of course people are gonna want somewhere where they can bury their dead but you know you look back through the archaeological records and and whatnot and actual decent cemeteries for people who weren't part of the nobility were so rare that you know then all of a sudden you look back at that and it kind of clicks like well yeah okay so there's a really good reason why you should be building this to make people happy so that was one thing that i enjoyed the most was the level of detail and historical accuracy that was put in there so i kind of wish they'd hype that up more prior to launch maybe get more people interested especially history buffs you know egypt buffs archaeological people all that um, Yeah. Go ahead, Len. I was going to so another criticism I've heard is that, oh, it's it's a $60 saga, which we kind of talked about. Like saga was a branding that they used a little for a while for like a smaller Total War game. I think Fall of the Samurai was like retroactively lumped in there. Um, And then Thrones of Britannia and Troy were the other two, Um, which I don't really agree with. I think the scope is. Like I said, it's smaller than like Rome, too, for sure. But I think it's definitely bigger than, you know, Troy um, or Thrones of Britannia. Um, But I think where that 
that criticism does ring true to me a little bit. Is it like, you know, okay, people are going to say, well, it's called Total War Pharaoh. What did you expect? It's definitely like Egypt and friends. Like it's yeah. the game is mainly about Egypt. I did play. Um, I played some Irsu, who is like the raider guy in Canaan. And I also played the guy whose name I'm never kind of pronounced correctly. Sh- Shupalilumia. Uh, it's like the, the king of the Hittites. Um, not the antler guy. But the not actual, the antler guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's Karunta. I can say Karunta, his name yeah. just fine. Yeah. Um, and it's not uh, it's not as rich of an experience like it just isn't like they only have two legacies and I think they're both kind of boring for the Hittites. Yeah. There's one where like, oh, you get gifts from your vassals, depending on how good of a king you are. And it's like, all right, uh, whatever, <laughs> like or you can spend favor on you could spend your benevolence on like one time benefits um and uh you know versus egypt you know they have four main characters they have four different legacies to pursue and like the this cast becomes i would even count bay in there as a fifth because bay is technically a canaanite but like his whole thing is like he wants he's an Egyptaboo. He wants to be part of the Egyptian world. <laughs> so I think yeah. he becomes part of that tapestry pretty quickly, uh, pretty early on. Um, whereas, yeah, the Hittites, it's like two guys up there. They've got some beef going on. Um, the map is cut off really weirdly. It's like this half moon shaped slice of Anatolia where you can't get to the black sea or the Aegean. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It's the, the, the experience playing outside of Egypt is not anywhere near as good as the experience playing inside of Egypt, um, which also just has to do with how great, like the map of Egypt is with, you know, basically using the Nile as a highway and like these outlying settlements that might not be connected as the crow flies. So you have to decide, I'm going to risk crossing the desert and taking a bunch of attrition, or I'm going to take the long way around that is going to take me like half a year, um, which really makes outposts so much more significant. Yes. Because those yeah. chains of outposts let you move over land so much faster. Um, and just I like love one, one raider hope- taking out a, a way station can screw up your whole plan. Yeah. I I really hope they stick with the outpost system for future games because I think yes. it's really smart. And one of the things that I've always like it, the, the way real estate is handled in total war has always been unique and weird. Uh, so, and I've, I felt that it's it, one of the things that, that makes it a little, I don't know, not hard to manage at this point. I've, Played enough Total War to be pretty used to it, but it's just so abstract from what you're looking at on the map. Um, in many cases, like you're looking at kind of a just a ribbon that pops up at the bottom of the screen that shows you all the settlements in a province, um, and it, and they they sometimes they are in different order than you're looking at them as you, as you observe them on the map. Strange, but I find that being able to add now every settlement has two or three outpost slots, and you can build. Uh, economic, religious, or military um, outposts in these slots. And I feel like they give them so much more just geographic context. Now it matters where those settlements are in, you know, relative to each other and the rest of the map. Um, Because these, like you said, Len, the outposts can provide crucial places to rest on your way to far flung settlements across the desert, or they could be on your frontiers and give your armies big boosts as they head off to attack a enemy uh, city or something. Um, there's, I, I really think it's a smart system and I, 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 I a hundred percent hope that they, they stick with it. Yeah. And then even the ones that are sort of like not on major highways, just sort of, I guess like in your heartland, you know, you've got the freedom to turn one settlement into this, you know, food production powerhouse while the other one is your center of culture or whatever. Um, cause at first I just sort of Christmas treed and decided, okay, this one, <laughs> this one gets, you know, this building and just, just to kind of see what, how it worked and what would happen. Um, but yeah, I think I, I really enjoyed being able to kind of 
specialize each settlement um even outside of using them for more practical purposes like getting your soldiers across the desert yeah uh, it, it really adds a lot of like distinct like you say distinctive character to each settlement i mean the other thing that i found that was super helpful this was i figured this out way too late actually but building a fort um in one of your outpost slots means that anybody who's stationed in there you can drop troops off there and they'll reinforce during a siege mm-hmm. um which is great but the other thing that you can do if you if the, the other purpose that a fort serves is that the cost for upkeep for any units that are stationed in the fort is halved um so Ooh, if you're I don't think I knew that yeah if you're if you if you've got a bunch of big stacks uh, or, or even just one. I mean, one way to kind of park a bunch of guys is just drop them off in a fort and have them stay there until you need them. Um, and it's way cheaper. Um, so yeah, finding uh, like, I don't know, they, it, the, the, there's also uh, religious outposts like shrines that you can build that increase your favor with local gods. So the outpost system I find is one of the, it's a really clever way that um, Sophia found to kind of incorporate, like it's a nexus for all these different game mechanics that kind of meet and are, um, they're, it, the outpost system kind of touches a lot of almost everything else in the game. I think it's really smart. Yeah, yeah definitely agree. Yeah, forts are great, I think, offensively and defensively because they they change how that like approach to a settlement phase of conquest happens regardless of which side you're on, because like a fort, a fully staffed fort will reinforce a siege no matter how far away it is from the main settlement, those troops get to fight in the defensive siege. So on the defense, you can station 10. I think the maximum is usually 10, 10 units in the fort. And then like, just like a random newly recruited general with a stack of 20 in the settlement and now you you're defending with 30 which is like a lot (laughs) a lot more robust of a defense you know especially late game when i had like tier six libyan armies constantly attacking my desert oases like i i couldn't just rely on a 20 stack of militia anymore i needed something to give me more of an edge but then when you're conquering it creates this really interesting sort of dance where I would generally have an army whose job was basically to set the pick on the fort. Like they mm. just siege it and encircle it. And then my main army attacks the main city and we take it and then we get the fort for free because we took over the whole province. Um, so, yeah, it really encouraged me to have like these small teams of armies that all kind of have a job when we move into a new province. Um and, you know, it, it makes you interact with geography more. I think it makes the world feel more real because you do have this kind of like the way pre-modern settlements usually looked, you know, uh, you know, from a bird's eye view where you would have villages surrounded by towns and then towns surrounded major cities. Um, I think they, they did a very good job of portraying that with with the new province and outpost stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the, uh, just reminded me of the world being more alive. Um, the, the effect of the Nile on, you know, for every, every cycle of seasons, um, on how prosperous your settlements would be, especially if you ended up starting out, you know, with in a coastal area and then on how everyone else would trade. Um, that was, I, I thought that was a really clever touch. Yeah, yeah, there's there's like a whole cycle of flooding and you have to kind of pick between like you can you can go really hard on farms, which is more of like a feast or famine strategy, or you can go fisheries, which is like you're going to have less food, but it's a little bit less volatile. Yeah. Um, if you commit to fisheries. Um, yeah, it's uh, food was usually the limiting factor, I think, for most of my campaign. Same. Like I would. I want to build another army, but I don't have enough food. So I, I was always trying to like build these huge food producing settlements uh, along the river. Um, I always wanted to have like a decent amount of float when it came to food too. Mm-hmm. And that way, when there was a drought, I'd be able to, you know, okay, well, I've got 14,000 grain in the bank. It's going to be okay. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It's an interesting 
It's a, it's another interesting way that the economy kind of just drives um, your strategic decision making in this idea. It's yeah. Right. Well, the other thing relating to battles um, and especially if you're comparing to Warhammer three, which I think is probably one of the faster total wars, partly because you have like, I don't know, like slanesh demons that just like chew through infantry lines and things like that. Um, but I think they've slowed it way down um, mm -hmm. in terms of just like the pace of infantry engagements, which to me, I like that a lot better because that gives me more time to like maneuver and make interesting decisions that are actually going to affect the outcome of the battle. Yeah, it's not just like clash of shields and then it's over, which is kind of one of the things that annoys me a little bit about Warhammer. Yeah, typically when I was playing Warhammer, I'd always have to, it, like you said, I mean, it moves so much faster. You have to pause it and try and stop and think what you should, what you should do next. That's, I mean, that's, that's how I had to approach it. But yeah, you could, everyone um, kind of trundling yeah. along in Pharaoh, it, it is a lot easier to to kind of predict what's going to happen and then respond to it accordingly before disaster hits. I mean, that is the charm of Warhammer is that like a unit can just be engulfed in warp fire by rattlings uh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, at, at any uh -huh. time. But, but yeah, that's not really appropriate for this. Setting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, f I found the terrain, like the battle maps. There's a lot of them, by the way. Like there's if you go into custom battle, I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of battle maps in this game. Um, I found the terrain really fun to play with. Like if I was against somebody who I knew had better ranged troops than I did. I just parked my whole army like behind the crest of a sand dune. It's like by the time they get here, they're not going to be able to use their superior range against me. Yeah. Um, and the minor then, settlements, I think, yeah. have good. They, they have good maps, I think, in this one. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, yeah. The sandstorms often like bit me in the ass because, again, I was. I was running a pretty heavy archer heavy army and archer heavy armies just get hard nerfed if a sandstorm yeah, rolls yeah. in like you're 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 really going to be hurting. Um, I tried my best to never have to fight in a sandstorm. Um, if you I, every time I <laughs> used up my turns, though, like waiting for better conditions, uh -huh. the last one was almost always sandstorm. <laughs> yeah, when it was always those freaking Libyans, I'm out there trying to keep the Libyans from burning down my entire western frontier and it's like you get a sandstorm you get a sandstorm yeah. it's like these guys fight better in sandstorm they can move stealth when they're in a sandstorm and i'm like it's i felt like the i, I was the freaking like harkonnens fighting yeah. against the fremen or the something fremen. Yep. like it was uh it was pretty rough but <laughs> it's like i can't afford to lose this because my army relies on bronze now because they're all high tier troops and all the good bronze settlements are way out in the middle of nowhere for some reason. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, there's some other good developments. I think like there's no, uh, this is a change they, they talked about a lot in the lead up, but no more pocket ladders. Um, yes. You have to build ladders. If you're going to siege a settlement, that's going to be part of your preparations because units just don't have ladders. They could just whip out. Um, right, right. Of, uh, pocket dimension anymore. That's good. Um, um, yeah, the sieges. The sieges. I don't know. the The pacing on the sieges is still a little weird for me. I don't know if if this is just part of the problem. Is we're working with this engine that is like super old and they just keep upgrading it and upgrading it. You know, I've, I've talked about total war fatigue and I, I really wish that they would make some kind of technological leap forward in the battle engine. Cause we have kind of been playing the same game since Rome Two, a little yeah. bit like, you know, it, it works well enough at what it does. They, they keep trying to add fun little twists to it. I do like how the weight classes in Pharaoh kind of change up how you think about infantry a little bit. Um, but yeah, like I think I feel like total war needs a new battle engine at this point in, in, in 2023, 2024, mm. they just, they need a new battle engine. It's like, it's really kind of showing its age. Um, and there's only so much you can, you can do with it. 
Um, it's like that that step down because yeah, we we've kind of seen. I feel like thanks to Warhammer, we've kind of seen like the pinnacle of what this current iteration mm-hmm. can do. Like this concept has been taken to its like logical absurd limit with yeah. flying dragons and warp fire <laughs> cannons and or you know uh, uh the demons of corn rampaging on the field. Like we've seen these things now and it and and to kind of <clears throat> ratchet things back even you know to a a, a welcome historical setting yeah it, there's there's no way to avoid that feeling like a bit of a come down so yeah maybe it's time to have a rethink and go back to the drawing board and come up with a new um paradigm yeah i mean my frame of reference since you know i pretty much have only had warhammer 3 as my other total war game is obviously nowhere near as as complex as yours but um but i definitely agree as far as from a combat perspective i would much rather be doing battles in warhammer 3 than in pharaoh so i tended to just let them auto resolve (laughs) (laughs) yeah after a certain point most i think most battles end up being auto resolves for me but um yeah, and I mean, we've talked extensively on the Discord and stuff about like, OK, well, Empire 2 would be great, but like I would love to see an engine that could actually handle something reasonably similar to the size of a Napoleonic battle if you're mm. going to do that again. Tell you, <laughs> which I, the, the the Total War Napoleon or Napoleon Total War, sorry, yeah, got me real excited seeing that that cannon smoke hanging in the morning. Yeah. You know, that, well, show me like something like you, that again. I don't think you could do another Napoleon total war where there's like 10,000 guys at the battle of Waterloo. Like that's just not, not not (laughs) adequate. It looks silly. Um, So I'd love to see them. way come up with a way to do better battles. I don't even care if it kind of looks worse. How much time do you spend zoomed in anyway? Like looking at individual little details on your soldiers, but. um, Well, present company excluded. (laughs) <laughs> we all have to be hunting for screenshots uh, when we're that's playing true games, that's yeah. true yeah. <laughs> um overall though i like i i really liked pharaoh like i uh, you know i wish i hope people give it a chance if you want to wait for a sale because you feel like it's not a 60 dollar game that's fair enough but i do think if you're a total war fan you know you should give this one a shot it is actually very good um, is kind of my my last word on it. I agree. Yeah, and yeah, like the the things that I complain about it are uh, the, the complaints I have about it are complaints I just have about Total War in general, right? Not really. <laughs> I mean, I think that like yeah. as a Total War game, it's a super solid one, and the the theme's interesting. I think they've done really interesting things with that theme. So yeah, it's worth a shot. Yeah, definitely. I think the things I mean, the things that stand out to me that I grumble about. Um, I kind of, they only stand out because most of it is just done so well that the bits that aren't as good really do just kind of stand out more. Um, but yeah, I think it's, um, it's definitely got me interested in wanting to go back to play older historical total war games. Um, and I think just the, the depth of strategy and building your settlements, um, the range of opportunities that's available for how you want to approach conquest and expansion. Um, it was really impressive. And yeah, I had, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, before we get out of here, Ian, where can people find your stuff? Uh, you can find me on blue sky, uh, at I at blue sky.social. And then I'm, um, uh, regularly writing on tap tap. You can find us, uh, at tap tap.io. And Josh, where can people find your work? Um, I'm on Twitter at um, Finn the Brave, F-I-O-N-N, the Brave. Um, and then the same on Blue Sky. Um, and then most of my work is with um, GLHF, with uh, USA Today, and then Sports Illustrated. Um, but I also freelance uh, anywhere that will take my words so and pay me for them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so hit him up. Um Yeah, uh, I am just Len on Blue Sky. I got in early enough that I got a three letter username, uh, L-E-N dot B-Sky dot social. Um, We're also 3MA on on uh, Twitter and Blue Sky. Um, And 
you can also now find us, although as of the recording of this, there's nothing there yet. Uh, we are 3MA Live on Twitch, and uh, this is kind of a soft launch. Um, there will be more news about that in the near future. It's <clears throat> in addition to not a replacement for the podcast, but we will be streaming on 3MA Live on Twitch. Um, might be doing some stuff on YouTube as well. Um, as always, the show is supported by uh, listeners like you on Patreon. You can head over to patreon.com slash 3MA. Um, next bonus episode, we're continuing our theme of uh, historically themed games that aren't necessarily tactics and strategy. And I think we're going to try to tackle Assassin's Creed as a series. I don't know if we're going to be able to do that in one show or not. We might have to break it up into two. Um, but uh, There's a lot yeah, of Assassin's Creed. Yeah, got some fun guests uh, lined up for that. Um, what else do I usually say at the end of a podcast? Uh, Three Moves Ahead is op- hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can check out idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. There's forums over there. There's some other cool podcasts. Soren Johnson has a podcast. He's a cool guy, friend of the show. You should listen to him as well. And uh you can find my writing on PC Gamer and IGN usually. And I think that's going to do it for this week. Uh, so until next time, for Ian and for Josh, this is Len saying goodnight. <laughs>